Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten from XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We're joined today by an actor who has played everything from My Fair Lady and Oliver, uh, musical comedies, obviously, to Hamlet, The Taming of the Shrew, to Edward Albee's The Goat, or Who is Sylvia. In film, he portrayed Juan Perón in Evita. In Tomorrow Never Dies, a James Bond movie, played Elliot Carver, the media mogul villain from that movie. Pirates of the Caribbean, played the governor, and has been on Broadway four times now, twice winning the Tony for Miss Saigon, where he played the engineer, and also in uh, Comedians, and currently starring on Broadway as Lawrence Jameson in Dirty Rotten Scandals. Jonathan Price, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. You have just recently joined the show, but it's not a new show to you because you had seen it with an old buddy of yours in the lead, John Lithgow, who you played with in The Comedians uh, yeah, that's right. 30 I mean, years we, ago. We um, we appeared together in 1976 in mm-hmm. Trevor Griffith's play, and we became friends and stayed friends. Uh-huh. And he's, uh, as I'm sure if you've met him, he's one of the most charming, delightful people mm-hmm. you could ever want to spend time with. And... Um, I was in New York earlier last year and went to see Dirty Rodden Scoundrels purely because he was in it. It was just a chance to catch up with a friend and have dinner. And uh, I then had no intention or idea that I would ever end up doing it. Um, But the producers knew I'd seen it, asked me if I had enjoyed it, would I like to do it after John. Um, And it, it came as quite a surprise to me that they would think of me so I, I said I'd uh, I'd have to come back and see it again so I well, did I made a second visit well you, you were just seeing it as an average theater goer to enjoy the show yeah. not even thinking of being absolutely, in absolutely yeah mm-hmm. yeah but I had to come back and see it again and project myself into uh, into Lawrence Jameson and think, think if I could uh, if I could do it and if I would have uh, if it would be interesting enough and um, yeah interesting enough to, to take over from someone well, but the main uh, thrust apart from enjoying John's performance the main and and the show the main reason I wanted to do it having seen it a second time was uh, the idea of working with Norbert and um, I I think he's an extraordinary performer he made me laugh and um, I just thought we could have a good time together it was I'm oh, sorry. I, keep I, I was going to say for those who haven't seen the show, Norman yeah. Leo Butts is the other half of the the two con men team. He's the slapstick half, and you are the more dignified. Uh, yeah, sort of. Well, a- I attempt to be more dignified. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I thought when I saw it that the uh, the Lawrence Jameson role was the uh, the easy option, um, but I've uh, I've learned after playing it for over a month now that it's uh, it's far from easy. Well, it's interesting having seen both yourself in it and uh, John Lithgow also. You've reinterpreted the role. You've made it your own. Mm. Uh, you've found different aspects of the character, different nuances, and sitting in the theater, in the Imperial Theater, watching it, I'm thinking, this is a different Lawrence Jameson. It's the same role, the same lines, but a different portrayal. Yeah. How, how do you interpret the role? Um, well, I, I don't know. It's like most things I do. Not everything I do, but most things I do. I start with myself. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not a not someone who externalizes and then um, uh, gets down to what the character really is about through myself. I start with myself and work outwards. So, um, and I, I never thought of John while I was doing it at all. Um, and I, the people I was working with, uh, Jack O'Brien and the assistant director. The uh, director, Jack yeah, O'Brien. Yeah, Jack O'Brien. They um, were very encouraging that I should make it my own and things. And people having 
most of them having done it for over a year were, were very uh, welcome to the idea that they could have new input and new, well, it's new interesting things happening. Because you did go in as a replacement with most of the original cast still in place. Yeah. And here you're the, the, the new kid on the block, the new guy coming in. Yeah. How, how did you then work within the framework? In other words, they all had their own roles yeah. pretty well defined by that point. Well, they were, they were, they were wanting to, uh, to, to make fresh uh, ideas, you know, bring fresh things to their own characters, and they they just loved the, the the way we could do things differently. And of course, you also had Rachel York, who was coming in at about the same time. I don't recall if it was simultaneous, but replacing Sherry Renee Scott. So at least in the central roles, there there certainly yeah. was some some flexibility going on at that yeah. point. Yeah. Well, I started with Sherry, who is um, I think one of the most extraordinary performers. She was the other reason for my wanting to do it. And, and then I'll, you found out she wasn't going to be there that long. But Rachel York is also uh, delightful, wonderfully talented. Um, and Sherry will be back uh, later on in the in the run. Um, but Norbert is still there. Joanna Gleason, I think, uh, has, a, has a wonderful quality, very um, uh, un- unlike any performer you'll find on the English stage. She has this quality which is kind of timeless, and, and yet it echoes to, like, 30s and 40s, uh, film comedians, I think she's just great. Well, when you talk about different than on the English stage, this is, in the wide variety of work that you've done, certainly A Dirty Rotten Scoundrels seems to be one of the more broadly comic pieces you've yeah. gotten to do. Yeah. Uh, was that a, a new opportunity to stretch some muscles there, or it was does an it opportunity back to, the to show when you're on whose yeah. line is it anyway? Well, it, it, it was an opportunity to, to stretch my own muscles and to show people that I'm not you know, just the the bad guy in uh, James Bond, or the or the serious actor. Um, when I started out in in theatre, it was at the Liverpool Everyman, where we had a very broad house style. It was a politically based uh, theatre, uh, politically motivated, and everything we approached, be it a new play or a classical play, had had a very out front style because we were dealing with on the whole, new audiences and unsophisticated audiences. So you, you adopted a, a, a way of being very brave and bold in your performance, um, which made you kind of fearless about whatever you approached, and it made me fearless about approaching <laughs> Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And also, it's, uh, it is great to have fun and to be with an audience that's having fun. Yeah, there's not too much thinking going there. Well, you have a great line at the end of your playbill bio. (laughs) He dedicates his performance to all classically trained actors who wind up performing in dirty, rotten musicals. You you just talked about your beginnings in a politically motivated theater company. And over the years, musicals have kept coming up. How did you make the transition into musicals because I've always been told that you know there's not a lot of training in musicals in England. It's much more about classical technique. Yeah. How did it come about? When did you first start to do them? It was uh, by accident. I mean, I've always been able to sing, and the, as I was saying, the, the theatre in Liverpool um, incorporated a kind of Brechtian style in its performance. So there was very often a rock band on stage while you we were performing a play. Um, so I'd always been able to sing. But it came about by um, accident, really, in that uh, I was playing Macbeth at Stratford, and I put on the um, the opening night. We put on a cabaret for the party, and I sang uh, as a kind of lounge act, uh, witchcraft, hmm. backed by my three witches, and incidentally with Simon Russell Beale accompanying 
on the piano. <laughs> um, whatever happened to him? And uh, and my agent was at the party, uh, saw me singing. The next day, called me. He said, uh, "I really enjoyed Macbeth. That was great, but uh, I'd forgotten you could sing. You should do a musical." And I said, "Yeah, that might be fun." And around about the same time, I went to see my friend Patty Lapone in Les Misérables. And I saw Les Mis, and I thought, oh, this is uh, fantastic. Um, it's this wonderful, um, huge, emotional piece. Uh, I was laughing, I was crying, the audience laughing and crying. And I was looking at the performers thinking, they're having a really good time. Um, I'm beating my head against the wall uh, playing Macbeth, trying to make people cry and you know move people. These guys are just standing there singing, and I, I, th uh -huh. I, I, I want some of that, I thought. I thought it was easy. Looks, looks easy. Looks easy. Sitting there, yeah. So then um, the agent again said, well, uh, they're looking for a replacement for Michael Crawford for Phantom. And um, he said, how do you feel about that? I said, well, I, I have no idea. I've never seen it, but uh, it sounds, let's pursue it. So I went and worked with the musical director to see if I could sing it. He reported back to Lloyd Webber and Hal Prince that I could sing it. I went in to meet them, and they said, uh, we'd love you to do it. Have you seen it? I said, no. Uh, <laughs> I think I should. So I went to see it, and, I, and having seen it, I decided that, unlike Scoundrels, I thought, I think the work's been done. And I don't see... It was, it was so formu uh, not formulaic, formulated and uh, structured. I thought there's nothing new I could bring to that role. So I passed on it. Just an interest to you at that point? No, I, I, I didn't think... Uh, also, the, 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 yeah, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't think at the, the time... It was it had been running a year, it was so well... I, I thought, in my kind of ignorance, there's nothing <laughs> I could bring to it. So then they were casting Miss Saigon with Cameron McIntosh. Mm -hmm. And they were throwing ideas around. And Nick Heitner said, for the role of the engineer, what we need is somebody like Jonathan Price, if only he could sing. So we like him. <laughs> <laughs> if only he could sing. And then Cameron said, well, he can. So they got me in, and uh, I listened to the demo tape, and I, I thought it was the most extraordinary piece, and I thought I, that's something I could do, and I wanted to do it. And I, now, you originated the role in London, yeah. the, the engineer, and then yeah. you later did it in New York, and here in New York it was some sort of a, a hullabaloo because you were neither Asian nor French, and the character was half French, half Asian. Yeah. Uh, and in London, was there any sort of a outcry about that, or did nobody really care in London? Well, I wouldn't say they didn't care, but they didn't think it was a, a political issue. I mean, there's uh -huh. the uh, there's the tradition within theatre that you play any race, mm -hmm. any time, you know, any age, any uh, nationality. Um, and the cast was um, in London. Was uh, there was a great difficulty finding Asian performers who were for musical theatre because there wasn't a history there. So there was quite a mixed bunch of people in the cast anyway, mm -hmm. where everyone was playing every kind of race. Um, it became an issue here because there, there, are, there are more uh, American-Asian performers. Um, but I think it was, it was difficult to, for them to make a case, and it was... Uh, slightly easy for us to argue the case that uh, having created the role and and they hadn't seen how I was playing it. I mean, there were cries of yellow face and that it was possibly racist what I was doing. And uh, I think once people saw what I was doing and saw how I 
played and how it was part of a company. The guy was mixed race anyway. Um, there was arguments uh, uh, fell away, but it, it it did have very positive um, repercussions uh, in that uh, more people began to you know more blind casting would take place and more people began to be seen for roles they wouldn't ordinarily be considered for, and it did bring on as Cameron did in in England he he opened a, there was a kind of academy where people could learn and, and train in musical theatre and um, I think it brought people on it gave people opportunity and uh, it, it was a very positive thing eventually very well, tough being in, in England at the time and uh, not being able to take part in the in the arguments other than receiving messages you know d down by, via fax or, uh, or reading things in the newspaper um, but it uh, it all worked out. Okay. It certainly worked out in, in this country. Um, once you did perform, you you did win the Tony for it. So obviously you were were accepted, and you mm. and you succeeded. Obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's it's also a wonderful piece. I mean, I did it for it was my first musical, and it, it was scary because I did it for two years. I'd never done anything for that length of time before, and I um it uh, it's. Well, music still does. It's like musical therapy. I mean, I can go into a musical every four or five years and, uh, you know, clear your head, you get to sing, and it's just... But also, of course, wonderful. you had other considerations when you came to New York. You had your family in England. You're, you're, yeah. You, yeah. You lived in London at the time. I, yeah. yeah. Did, did you bring do. your family with you? They... Uh, no, my... I have three children, and they were uh, quite young at the time, so it was easier for them to, to travel... And uh, it was easier for my uh, partner to to manage the family in the home situation rather than having to go through finding schools. And you know, they it, they they, they it, it's, it did work out okay. They're, they're still with me. And, <laughs> and and she, of course, an actress, so she understood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she did. It was tough, but she understood. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned you said do a musical every few years to to clear your head, but. Certainly, Saigon was not the lightest of material. And is there? Do you have a different feeling as a performer about what what it's like at the end of the night when you've finished a show, coming out of a musical and coming out of a play? Well, I think yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's very different singing than, and it's it's a shared experience. And that was something I discovered um, while rehearsing uh, Miss Saigon. I'd, I prior to that, I'd, I'd done lots of. Shakespeare and classical plays and new plays and I find my approach to Shakespeare I'd always uh, I'd never really been that rigid about the the iambic pentameter and uh, I, I approached it as if it was a new text in a, each time and then I came to Saigon and um, which was completely sung through and I found that I was having to work to someone else's timing. And there, you have a rhythm that's there uh, yeah. every night. And I found that discipline, instead of uh, being inhibiting, I found it quite freeing. I thought, this is, this is great. I can um, use the, the timing of the music. I can work with the conductor. And it was then a 40-piece orchestra. And, um, and still go on. And you, know, you'd ha you had that security underneath you. And then you had the, the, the feeling of that you could create and um, enjoy on top of that. And in a show like Scoundrels, I mean, there are moments when I was watching it where I thought they're trying to crack each other up. I mean, is that even more freedom or are you 
Are you trying not to crack each other? That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> trying to crack each other. That's fatal. But uh, I, I'm I'm afraid Norbert does make me laugh, and uh, and there's there's a place for it in scoundrels where you can, I and mean, as long as you're not uh, you know sort of uh, messing up the storyline, I mean it's uh, I, I can smile at him and enjoy him. That's 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 enough. But uh, I'm trying not to laugh at him. But going back to to Saigon and that that discipline, which I I found um, a great discipline to learn after being in the theatre for uh, then 20 years that uh, where we were rehearsing the songs and I I would if I would fumble or I would say oh stop I, uh, I'm not haven't quite got it Martin Koch the conductor said I'm going to stop now but from tomorrow I'm never going to stop and I will keep conducting and you've got to learn to uh, to do it at, in at in time, so you had to follow him. Follow yeah, because I, well, ultimately we worked together, but mm-hmm. I was having to, and uh, because he said I, w- I will not be able to stop a forty-piece orchestra if mm-hmm. you uh, if you have a th- going through a thought process in the middle <laughs> of a song. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that was a great discipline to learn. So now in Scoundrels, you don't have quite the same discipline, but do you have any freedom to work outside of the actual words on the page? Can you improvise or can you embellish a little bit? Uh, we've got a very, uh, (laughs) I try to, we've got a very strict, uh, uh, author who occasionally pops into the theater. Jeffrey Jeffrey Lane's hanging around watching Jeffrey Lane, for some reason, I don't know why, thinks his words are better. (laughs) I don't, I don't understand it. But, uh, we occasionally, um, uh, meander a bit, but not, not a lot. It's a, it's a one, it's a. It is a wonderfully written script, and there's no need to uh, try and embellish it too How much. about a little, little business, little actions, not little necessarily business, words. Little business, little action. Well, the Ruprecht scene is, uh, can get fairly anarchic, uh-huh. and um, that's a lot of fun because we're trying to scare off um, the Jolene Oaks character. Right, right. And, uh, and, and Norbert and I do have a lot of uh, fun. And I, 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 I saw the show on opening night, which was just a year ago, and... I swear the man is getting better the more he does it. He's funnier than ever, I think. Norbert. Norbert, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, we've oh, yeah. been talking around scoundrels and back and forth to Saigon, but I think this would probably be an appropriate moment since we, we don't have a, a cast album of you in Scoundrels to hear something from Miss Saigon. Uh, what shall we play? Well, let's, uh, let's hear The American Dream. Can you set up how that works in the show for those who, who did not see it? Well, uh, th- those few people who didn't see it. Right. Um, well, uh, the character of the engineer has been trying to get out of Vietnam, get to America to realize the, the wonderful capitalist dream that he has. And uh, it's, uh, it's almost the end of the piece, and he senses that he's, he's on his way to America. From Miss Saigon, American Dream, Jonathan Price as the engineer. Jonathan, you spoke of this political theater in Liverpool, but there's certainly a road from political theater in Liverpool to the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Royal Court. How did that transition come for you? Um, it was quite a smooth transition because the Liverpool uh, was my first job. It was under a, a wonderful director called Alan Dosser. And it was a theater company where you could stay for as long as possible. It, it's not, not like it is now. It was a true repertory company where you'd stay for a year, two years, three years and play an, a different production every four or five, sometimes six weeks. 
and I worked there for a year and then went to Nottingham Playhouse where the similar system was set up with Richard Eyre and it was his uh, he'd just taken over the company there and I worked with Richard for a year and that culminated in our doing um, Trevor Griffiths' play Comedians which started at Nottingham then went to London briefly and then I came here to do the American production, the new because it production. was a different production, different director, yeah, and different and direct. new Mike Nichols directed it here, um, and I was the only one from the original cast who came over. And I think it was from the sort of the well, it was my first exposure in London and and here, and from there, um, that's when I went back to England. My name was a bit better known; people knew what I could do, and they that's when I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company for a season and did um, Taming of the Shrew, Octavius Caesar in Anthony Cleopatra Measure for Measure um, that was it there's sort of three plays for the season and Taming the Shrew I had um, I ran the company in Liverpool for a, a, a short season um, as artistic director formed a company I was then like 28 I think it was Alan Dosser took a sabbatical took the rest of the company with him to London to do another play and I formed a company of uh, then uh, unknowns as it were with uh, uh, I gave Julie Walters her first job and Pete Postlethwaite was there and Bill Nye and um, I had been acting there with Tony Cher now now Sir Anthony Cher how that came about I don't know. <laughs> um, so it, it, it everything kind of started from from Liverpool and it was this rolling ball that kept going. Well, how did you start originally? Your your parents were working class. You were born in Wales. Your father yeah. was a coal miner. Your mother worked in a shop. How did you get into theater to begin with? Were you were you classically trained? Um, I was eventually classically yeah. trained, but I, but I uh, it, again, it was by accident. It's uh -huh. like the Phantom of the Opera story in that uh -huh. I, um, I left school at 16 and went to art school, uh -huh. and that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to paint, and I... Um, I was at art school for two years and then went to another college to train to teach art. And I had to do a subsidiary course. And friends said to me the easiest course to do that requires the least amount of work <laughs> was the drama course. Mm -hmm. And that suited me. Um, I thought it was you know, something I could just opt in and out of every now and then. But uh, like a lot of people, I had uh, an extraordinary man as a as a drama tutor, a man called uh, Jerry Dawson, who um, ran uh, the Unity Theatre in Liverpool, which was, again, a politically-based theatre, communist, originally a communist theatre, um, when communism wasn't a bad word. And um, I worked with him. I began to like what I was doing. Somebody saw me act in a college production, a, a man who'd been an actor, and he said, have you ever thought of being an actor and I said no no, of course not and he said well I think you should and he um, he sent off to the Royal Academy to get the audition papers and encouraged me to audition and I did and they gave me a place and that was it I never I never taught art and for a long time I never drew or painted again I've uh, I've started again but it's been a long time what, what sort of painting do you do? well it, I, I do uh, life drawing mostly now and uh, and figurative painting, um, 
but it's uh, I've got 35 years to make up for so <laughs> but the drawing's not bad sorry it it strikes me looking at uh the history of your work that you fairly quickly in that mid-70s period began working equally you were working equally on stage and going right into tele- some television work and, and mm-hmm. then film work all along the same time yeah. was that is that because of doing the work in England where we always hear it's so easy it's so much easier to go back and forth between well it was them? easy I, mean, I didn't do much film work until uh, sort of early 80s really um but going between television and, and theatre was was a, a lot easier and uh, and vital. You could make some money in television, but it was it was never what I wanted to do. I mean, I thought theatre was what I wanted to do. Television, you'd earn some money, and film is what other people did. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't really that many opportunities for film then in England. Not. Well, is it easier to go back and forth because film, television, theater, all in the same city, all in London, as opposed to yeah, in the not. States, New yeah. York, and then Hollywood for film and television? Yeah, yeah. Is, is, and is that the uh, and there's there's quite a lot of se- there's less segregation now. I mean, it used to be even here in uh, especially in America, you either did television or you did film, and the two didn't mix. Now, if you've done television, it um, it certainly helps to to get you into film. You know, well, how, how do you name find recognition? How do you find working in theater in this country vis-a-vis working in theater in England? Well, I've uh, I've only done two big musicals here mm-hmm. and uh, in the past few years. Doing comedians um, and accidental, when I say only, I mean the, the big experience has been the musicals. Comedians was a, a difficult piece politically, but it was a critical success um, and people who saw it were incredibly I don't know if you saw it ever but it was a wonderful wonderful play and I still meet people now after 30 years who who, who remember in great detail that production um, and I did Accidental Death of an Anarchist here which was a play that ran for two years in London uh, without me uh, and it ran for, I think, f- three or four weeks. Two, two, <laughs> two weeks, weeks from the time it opened yeah. till it closed back in 1984. It, it shouldn't have been on uh, on Broadway. That was the problem with it. it. It was an overtly political piece. And then in the mid-'80s, it, it, it couldn't survive. It, uh, a lot of... The, the troubling thing about theatre, uh, Broadway and West End, it's, be- it's become corporate theatre where you, you have to get your big corporate bookings. You have to get large numbers in. Um, and anything that's at all uh, edgy, uh, questionable politically, is is it's really difficult. And when we see it now with this, um, the my name is Rachel Corrie, which has just been pulled from the schedules here. Yet is playing, it's going to play the West End in London. And um, I think that's less to do with uh, the corporate ideology rather than the political ideology and I think it's a it's a huge I don't know if you know the piece but it's a a missed opportunity to see a wonderful piece of theatre through ignorance in a way I think well how, how about how about as an actor in, in in the process of acting is it any different in this country working with American actors primarily American versus in, in England working with British no actors? I think good actors are good actors wherever they are and you um, I'm working with some highly uh, skilled actors now um, the audiences uh, are, are different. 
Um, they are, I think, certainly, especially with scoundrels, anyway, a piece like this, they're, they're more vociferous. They're, they're noisier, they're louder. Um, I've never had anybody in England shout out, awesome, when you get the end of a song, which is... <laughs> <laughs> that really happens? <laughs> that really happens. It happened the other night, which is, oh, wow. uh, is quite fun. Um, but the, there's... Uh, I think there's a there's a good sense of uh, of the occasion here, especially with musicals, um, and uh, I, I don't I don't think they I I did the Goat in London uh, two years ago, um, and I I didn't see it here, but I, it was re- the the different sensibilities were reported to me. I think people were here more shocked by the subject matter than they were in London. Maybe we've got different approaches to... Well, traditionally, we're supposed to have quite a complicated sex life in the British. So what was the response in England? It was it was just another play, whereas... Well, it was, fairly, was... it was fairly intense, and it was uh, there was a lot of... Uh, I mean, I, I was surprised by the audience. I thought people would be more shocked, but they did... I'm not comparing it with the American production now, but they they did see it as uh, as I read it as a kind of universal theme piece rather than ma- it's not about a man who's in love with a goat. You know, it's about everything else to do with life. Yeah, well, we've actually we've talked on this program about that and and the people who looked at it literally about the action and. Yeah. and but your feeling was that in you know at least the sense was that in England it was much more accepted for the metaphor and not for the literalness. Yes, I think so. yeah, yeah. And since you since you bring it up, that was the second major um, Edward Albee role that you'd had the opportunity to tackle. You'd played uh, George and Virginia Woolf earlier on. Well, I'd only done it with uh, when I say only, I had done it with Uta Hagen in a stage reading, mm-hmm. and um, both here in Los Angeles, and that was uh, that was a wonderful experience. And from that, it was uh, that's when I'll be on meeting him. We did, it was decided that I should do a, a full production of it. But uh, the goat came in between uh, the idea of doing Virginia Woolf, and um, I did the goat. And then they wanted to do it here. The plan was to do it a few months later. And I thought I was kind of I found the goat incredibly intense to do. And uh, I did it with my uh, my partner, my wife, Kate Fahey. We played husband and wife. So it was it was quite an intense time, and the, I I wasn't ready to um, to go into George and Martha territory straight away. So um, that's. But Edward wanted to go ahead with the production then, so I, I had to pass on it. It's interesting as we talk about this. We're talking about difficult roles, comedians. Certainly, you played a. a certainly a character with a great deal of torment and the role in the goat and although we mostly talk about theater uh, on this program I want to ask and we're talking about difficult pieces there was also Brazil which was sort of famously a difficult piece and I'm just wondering what your recollections over the battle of the versions of Brazil were well of course doing it the actual the making of it wasn't difficult at all. So I mean, was it like Saigon where the controversy was elsewhere? Well, the controversy was later, yeah. So, but doing it, we, um, it, it was the most, one of the most extraordinary times I've had, certainly on film. And it went, the filming of it went on for months and I was there as Sam Lowry every day and then you'd have visiting actors 
popping in for their bits, you know, De Niro and Bob Hoskins and Michael Palin. And it was uh, every day. It was uh, it was extraordinary to be there with Terry Gilliam, and uh, it, it was well, it was an amazing time. And if you've seen it, you know what the end result is like. But it's uh, well, depending on where you've seen it in this country, yeah. you don't always know what the of end course. result was yeah. like. Yeah. Because I, I should say, for those who don't know the film, there was a great battle between Terry Gilliam, this was one of her, his earlier films, with, I believe it was Universal Pictures, yeah, over like the ending of the film. And yeah. should it have an upbeat ending or the darker ending that yeah. Gilliam wanted? Yeah. Depending on when you see the film, you can yeah. walk away from it with two very different impressions. Yeah. Well, I think what you the TV version certainly is uh, Universal Studios' version. And um, but it's it's fully available on DVD. Uh, the Criterion edition has everything and more. Um, and it's uh, yeah, there were, it, it, it was it, at the time it felt like the Saigon argument. You know, why can't they just let us? Why don't they see what we let it be seen? What we're doing, you know. Um, but I think enough people have seen that uh, the true version now. Well, we're talking about film, and I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that you've been in a number of films. I just highlighted a few of them, Evita, Tomorrow Never Dies, Pirates of the Caribbean 1, 2, and 3, and a whole bunch of others. As an actor working in film versus working on the stage, do you have a preference for one over the other? Um, film's generally over with quicker. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I think... I'm, I used to th- be able to say um, I used to say that theatre was better for me because I was I had more control over what I did. I certainly had more choices in theatre, um, and in theatre I'm uh, just speaking for myself. I'm my own. Once once the rehearsal process is uh, done with and you're performing, I still feel like I'm my own director. I'm certainly my own editor, mm-hmm. and um, you know nobody's going to cut out the little bit that I think is essential in some of my finest work on the editing floor um, but uh, I I don't know, I, I, I've begun to in, enjoy the process of film a lot more than I used to, when I started out I, I found it quite tedious and, well, was and difficult. It, certainly in film, once you've done your performance, your part is over and the editor can make or break that yeah, performance yeah. is what we're, we're talking about, yeah, by yeah. cutting out certain Lines or gestures or looks or whatever yeah. can change yeah. the, the the tone the the nuance. Yeah, but I I, I found that uh, the more I've done, the more each will inform each the theatre will inform film and vice versa. And that and then when you, I mean Brazil uh, is quite quite an intensely theatrical piece anyway, um, and I've found that uh, well when Lytton Strachey, which I played in in Carrington is as complex a, a character as you could hope to find in in the theatre. I mean, it's, it's kind of Chekhovian depths to him. And uh, and I found that very fulfilling to do, and it was as good as doing theatre. Well, we were talking earlier when you were saying about how freeing doing a musical is every few years, and we're talking about film. Of course, you did do the film of Evita, a film mm. that was anticipated literally for almost two decades before it came off. Is there the same experience of doing a musical film? Does, is it more, it's a film and you're still under the control of the way film operates as opposed to what you find so enjoyable about doing a musical? 
Uh, no, that was very much a film. Because <laughs> that yeah. film was edited within an inch of its life. Within an inch of its life. And it was uh, incredibly well structured and the vast majority of the music was pre-recorded. So you, um, it was freeing only in a way that uh, I knew I could go out and have dinner and have a drink at night mm-hmm. uh, and still not have to worry about singing the next day because I've already done it <laughs> three months before. Um but you that was you had to give yourself to that process and uh i trusted alan parker implicitly i think he's a wonderful filmmaker and the images he creates on screen to support the music are just uh are just great well you did play juan peron had you seen either the london or the new york version of evita before no no so you were coming into no. it kind of kind of cold yeah yeah. Did you do any uh, research on, on Oh, the I did a lot of Sadly, <laughs> I discovered that, also, that uh, everywhere he went, he sang. <laughs> that was the main discovery about Perron. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I, you can do all the research you want, but ultimately you've, you're, you're still working within the confines of, of that particular music. With, with the material that, that you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it, uh, there was a couple of songs that we sang live as well within there that uh, when the acoustic permitted um, so, so you did some of the songs live while you were filming it yeah. rather than pre-recorded tracks yeah. as, as usually it was just, done well we did uh, She's a Diamond which the film version is uh, is the live version I don't know what's on the CD whether it's the pre-recorded one and when uh, Evita is dying and Madonna and I had pre-recorded the the duet but uh, then found that when we were doing it we both Crying, so it didn't match at all. So then, we sat, we recorded that live. Yeah. Well, we just happened to have the DVD version, as well as the CD version. All oh, right. So on the chance that they may be different on the CD than on the film, why don't we play the song "She's a Diamond" from the DVD? Do that. Recorded yeah. live. Yeah. This is the singing Juan Perón. From Evita, she's a diamond. Of course, Jonathan Price, our guest today on uh, Downstage Center. That film, I happen to love. I saw it in the theater, then I bought it on Laserdisc, then later on a DVD. Uh, I think it's so atmospheric, so atmospheric of the era of the 40s into the 50s when mm. Juan Perón and Ava Perón were. Mm. Where, where was it actually shot? Uh, three locations, Buenos Aires, Budapest, and Shepperton Studios. For the interiors? For some of the interiors, it's uh, it was like six weeks Buenos Aires, six weeks Budapest. Um, the uh, the funeral scene is uh, that huge street scene. That's Budapest mm-hmm. standing. Then the um, architecturally they're very similar: Paris, Budapest, Buenos Aires. Except Buenos Aires was then you couldn't use those boulevards because they're absolutely full of uh, advertising hoardings and big lights. And whereas Budapest is still fairly, well it was then, stripped bare. Hmm. So you can spot amongst the palm trees uh, some uh, some leafless uh, oak trees <laughs> of Budapest. You talked a couple of moments in this interview, we've talked about the uh, comparison of what's happening in England versus what's happening in America on the stage, and one of the things that we hear discussed a lot, of course, is here is you know what's happening to Broadway. Is Broadway becoming so mass appeal, so tourist driven? And I'm wondering what you feel is happening in the West End. Mm. Is there because we hear that the same thing could be happening there? Do you think there's a narrowing of opportunity for a variety of work in the West End as people? 
l- at least suggest might be happening here? Well, it, it's. Um, I mean, it, you can say that there's. Uh, they're very, very reliant on the popular audience, obviously, and you want to get the popular audience in. They're, they're big theatres, and there's a lot of them. But uh, it's you can those arguments uh, which say you can't put serious theatre on, and it's all about musicals, and it's all frothy. Um, if the product is right, and if the production is right, people will go. I mean, uh, Schiller's um, Don Carlos with Derek Jacobi played in the West End. And a wonderful, extraordinary production. You think it would be inaccessible to a, a mass audience, and it uh, it played to full houses for its season. Well, in in London, there were even competing Schillers. There was Mary season. Stewart followed, and yeah. So it, it's uh, it's difficult to say, but it, there it it is. It's not as easy as it was to put on a a, a straight play, and um, as anywhere, it helps if you have names in it, but. Uh, Sometimes people just go. They'll they'll hear that the play is good, and it'll 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 fill the theatre. But um, you are reliant uh, on tourism, and there, a lot of uh, very few Americans visit London uh, in the past few years. And it isn't the big tourist hub because the the rate of exchange is so difficult; it's so expensive. Um, so the theatres aren't as full during the kind of uh, high season as they used to be. Well, you've played uh, Henry Higgins and My Fair Lady and Fagin and Oliver. You've played Hamlet. You've played The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, you've certainly played film roles. You've played villains there. You're playing currently Lawrence Jameson in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Are there any roles that you have not played that you're just dying to play that you would love to play? Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not a frustrated actor at all. I've, uh, <laughs> I've had my fair share of things. So there are I'm enjoying doing comedy now, mm-hmm. musical comedy. That's uh, that's pretty good. Um, and I think I, before I get uh, any older, I've, I've got to go back to um, to classical theatre. There's a few roles out there that I've still got to do. Which ones? Well, there's the big one that where I've I've talked to a couple of directors of of playing Lear, but that's uh, that's down the line. I'm still uh, I've still got some time yet. Yeah. <laughs> I hope. Well, I think on that note, Jonathan Price currently performing as Lawrence Jameson in Dirty Rotten Scandals. Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.